Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 25. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, again and again and again for your son Jesus, for his uh, willingness to go to the cross and pay the debt that we owe. And we pray that you would teach us how to better uh, live in light of that day by day, to live in light of the grace that we have in the cross. And uh, teach us now, uh, pour out your spirit on us, open our hearts and minds to the truths of your word, uh, guide us. Uh, by your Spirit, grant us a clearer sight of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts uh, chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. It's all your fault. If you hadn't done what you did then, I wouldn't be so angry now. You always do the wrong thing. You're out to get me. You only look out for yourself. You never care about anyone else. You think you're so great. But if people only knew the real you. Accusations. How do they make you feel when someone accuses you, or brings charges against you, or makes criticisms of you? Maybe you get a bit defensive. Maybe angry. Maybe you're quick to deny the accusations, maybe you say a few choice words back. We worry, right? Will, will people believe the lies that are being spread? 
Uh, Maybe you feel helpless, maybe hopeless. This morning we're going to talk about accusations, and uh, our outline is simple. You can find it on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to talk about the accuser, our response, the cross, and our appeal. The accuser, our response, the cross, and our appeal. Uh, But first, let's look at the story. You know, Paul had just spent uh, two years in jail. He was falsely accused, tried without evidence. And while the governor found nothing against him, Felix left Paul in jail in the hopes of getting paid off. Eventually, Governor Felix left office, and when he left office, he left Paul in prison as a political favor to the Jewish people. In Acts 22, a new governor uh, has been appointed and comes to town. He immediately leaves his office in Caesarea and visits Jerusalem. And while there, the chief priests and the leaders of the Jewish people state their case against Paul. You see, apparently after two years, their anger was unabated. They asked the governor to bring Paul to Jerusalem for trial or, or maybe even just for punishment. It's unclear what they're asking for. But their goal is to murder Paul along the way. You see, we saw previously that some zealots had made such a murder plot and failed two years earlier. But here, it's the leaders themselves doing the plotting and the planning, according to verse 3. Festus, the governor, for whatever reason, uh, wants them to come to Caesarea and and bring their charges there. So Festus returns to Caesarea. He he takes a seat on the, 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 quote, tribunal, which is like the judge's bench. Uh, Elsewhere, it's translated throne or even judgment seat. As in, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the word. And uh, those who then come from Jerusalem, they they, they come from Jerusalem, they bring many and serious charges against Paul, according to verse 7, charges which they could not prove. Paul, it would seem, uh, simply denies them in verse 8. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Uh, which is probably Paul denying these charges one by one. Here's what they're charging him of. They're charging him him of uh, breaking the law of the Jewish people, sinning against the temple, and uh, committing uh, some offense against Caesar himself, probably rebellion. Uh, Festus, though, he realizes at this point, seeing that there's no case uh, against Paul, and, and yet... At the same time, he, he wants to do a, a gain some political points with his new constituents, right, the Jewish people. And so he asks Paul if he is willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial. And Paul, knowing that that would mean death by a, a murder plot, he refuses, and what's more, he appeals to Caesar. See, Paul accepts trial before a Roman court. He, he's happy to present his case to those whom God has appointed to keep civil order. He's happy even to accept punishment, he says, if he has done anything deserving punishment. He is not happy, though, to be turned over to the Jewish people for either a rigged trial or a murderous ambush, which he knows is is really what this is all about. And so Paul appeals to the highest court in the land. He appeals to Caesar, which was a right of Roman citizens, hoping that it would seem to find justice there. Festus, uh, the governor, once he confers with his counsel, maybe to to make sure that this is legally the right thing to do in this case, he grants Paul his request. To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you will go. So what we find is Paul, once again, we've seen this in the book of Acts, Paul once again standing trial, 
Once again, he's the victim of threats upon his life, of false accusations from the religious leaders, and injustice at the hands of Rome, right? Festus really found him innocent. He could have dismissed the case, but he doesn't do that. So his appeal is to Caesar, the highest court in the land. And again, we've seen these trial scenes multiple times in the book of Acts. And what we're going to do this morning is focus uh, on really the larger biblical teaching on accusations, on false accusations, on lies. Uh, we too have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And in lieu of immediate destruction, right, he will settle for defamation of character as well. If Satan uh, cannot destroy the church, he's happy to destroy the reputation of the church or cripple our consciences by many and serious accusations. Ultimately, we too must look not to the courts of this age for justice, but appeal to the highest court, not the court of Caesar, but the throne of God in heaven. Once again, we're going to look at the accuser, our response, the cross, and our appeal. So first, the accuser. Paul's adversaries, we are told, uh, brought many and serious charges against him that they could not prove, verse 7. And if we read through the Bible's stories, what we find is that this is not unique to Paul. Uh, Listen to these words about Stephen just earlier in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. The chief priests in Jesus' day saw false witnesses against him in Matthew 26. And we're told in Matthew 27, uh, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So they're bringing charge after charge against Jesus. David in Psalm 27, verse 12, he says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. You know, if you want to destroy someone, this is a good way to do it. Right? Ruin their reputation. A good name is a valuable thing, the Bible says. Proverbs 22, 1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. This is why the ninth commandment, contrary to popular thinking, is actually not, you shall not lie. But it's more specific than that. The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The commandment is more personal than don't lie. It has to do with protecting the good name of your neighbor. The reason our name is so important is because human beings are made in the image of God. Our name, our reputation is a reflection of his name and his reputation. First Peter 2.12, Peter says to the church, right, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? Our reputation reflects our Father's reputation. Humanity in Psalm 8, uh, we're told, was made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. Our glory, like the glory of the moon, right, is a reflection of the glory of one greater than us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. But then he also said, we are the light of the world in Matthew 5, 14. Paul said, we shine as lights in the world in Philippians 2, 15. Well, we are lights. Why? Well, because we reflect the light of the sun. He is the light of the world, and we reflect his light. 
And so we find Satan destroying, seeking to destroy at least, uh, our name since the beginning. Uh, we, we, the very name Satan is the Hebrew word for the accuser. That's what Satan means, the accuser. We see him active in the book of Job, accusing Job to God. We see him active in Zechariah, accusing the high priest before God. Mostly we see him active through false witnesses who do the will of their father, who breathe out lies against people. So uh, Jesus says of some uh, of the Jewish people in his day, in John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Satan persistently, out of his own character, this is what he does, he seeks to tear down God's people, whether directly, as in the case of Job or Zechariah, or indirectly through those of us who fall into doing his work for him. But, you know, the truth is I probably don't need to tell you about Satan's accusing work because most likely you already know about it. Maybe you're even intimately familiar with it. And you know his accusations, even if you don't realize they come from him. Things like, how could you do such a thing? You call yourself a Christian? What kind of Christian are you? You're a pretty poor excuse for a Christian. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do that or say that or think that or want that. You're a horrible person. You're a failure. What a waste. You're not worth the air that you breathe. Now, maybe you hear different things than that. Maybe there are different accusations that you hear. For me, the, the constant charge that I'm tempted to believe is that I'm a failure. I have to fight against that accusation pretty much every day. What allegations do you hear? What charges? What criticisms? Right? When you're with people and you begin to feel unwanted or unloved or unwelcome, what reason comes to your mind? They don't want me because... When you're alone in the dark at night after the day is done, what criticisms do you hear? When you first wake up in the morning, do you feel Satan's anger, his malice then? Where does Satan attack? What charges does he bring? Let me talk about this from another angle, right? For, for just a moment, are, are you the one who's always assigning blame? Do you constantly critique and criticize the people around you? Do you regularly try to, try to help people improve by pointing out their faults? Have you ever wondered, may, maybe you're doing the devil's work for him, right? tearing people down rather than building them up? I find myself in this place all the time, sometimes with my boys, right? My words have an edge. There's a condemnation implied, even if not explicitly stated. I can, can hear the words coming out of my mouth and realize I'm, I'm the face of Satan to them at the moment, not the face of Jesus. The face of law and condemnation, not of grace. Well, whether you find yourself doing the devil's work or not, how do you respond when you are on the receiving end? What do, we, what do we do with those accusations? There are a few common responses, aren't there? Uh, first, we get defensive. Uh, I, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I, I have a good excuse, right? It's, it's my parents' fault or my biology's fault or my society's fault. We want to remove the blame as quickly as possible. We feel the weight of our guilt. We want to get out from under it. It's too heavy, too burdensome. Sometimes that's right, actually. We'll get to that in a minute. But for the moment, right, just explore with me, right, what does our knee-jerk response to criticism show about our hearts? Why do we respond so vehemently, 
when people criticize. Here's what I think it shows, at least. It shows that we know that we're accountable. It shows that we know we have to give an account for our lives, and so we want to be right. We want to be in the right, right? We, we, that is, we want to be righteous. When someone claims that we're in the wrong, it's a kind of mini, or, or maybe not so mini, existential crisis. And so we get defensive. Or we despair. We begin to wallow in self-pity, self-hatred, right? We become hopeless. Nothing's ever going to change, right? Nothing, nothing's ever going to get better. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to get better. I might as well not try. I might as well give up. No one could ever like me, love me, respect me. God certainly could never love me. So we spiral into self-pity, depression, and despair. When we feel the allegations, the accusations, the, the criticisms, we tend toward defensiveness or despair. Or sometimes uh, people think that there's a third way, right? Uh, people who neither get defensive nor despairing, they're just dismissive. They seem to not care about the accusations. It doesn't bother them when people criticize, right? There, there are those who just say, I, I don't care what people think. And they'll even say like, things like, oh, there's no right or wrong. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong as long as you, you just enjoy yourself along the way. Really, it's just a different kind of defensiveness, right? If I can dismiss the very idea of right or wrong, I can safely ease my conscience into thinking that I'm okay, whatever I might, have, whatever I might or might not have done. Oftentimes, a good dose of, of indulgence in the joys of this world, right, goes a long way to making me feel safe and comfortable, whatever else my conscience might say. But the truth of the matter is, right, if we're honest here, we, we always end up in despair if we're just focused on our failures. Whether I try to defend myself or dismiss the very idea of a need for defense, my conscience bears witness against me. And the moment we take a good hard look at our own hearts, we land in despair. In part because there, so many of the accusations are, are true. Which brings us to the cross. Right? When we hear the voice of the accuser, our tendency is to either defend or despair. We think it's an either-or, right? Either I have to prove myself righteous or I wallow in my guilt. But there's another way. Because of one who was accused and found guilty for us. You see, there's only one person on the planet who has ever walked on this earth guilt-free. Jesus was so bold as to even challenge his enemies in John 8, 46. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, how many of us could say that, especially to those who know us well? Right? How many of us would be bold enough to say, oh, yeah, when have I ever sinned? When Pilate asked the religious leaders in John 18, what accusation do you bring against this man? They respond, interestingly, uh, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Right? Which is really a non-answer. Though they did eventually bring accusations against Jesus, uh, they, they accused him of claiming to be a king. These accusations eventually led to his death. You remember the sign that was posted over his head on the cross was, was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was his crime. And though Pilate three times said, you remember Pilate? Pilate says three times against Jesus, I find no guilt in him. There's the Roman authority seeing the innocence once again. Nevertheless, he put Jesus to death. It was a matter of expedience, right? Not a matter of truth. 
It was politics rather than justice. And like Paul, right, there were certain men who hated Jesus, who wanted him dead, so they bring these false accusations against him. And the civil ruler, knowing the accusations are empty, nevertheless caves for political expedience. It was good for him, Pilate, to cave to their demands. So he uses his authority for his own good rather than for the good of those he was meant to protect. And yet Jesus, that whole time, right, Jesus neither defends nor despairs. We're repeatedly told that Jesus did not answer their many accusations. We're told this in the Old Testament. We're told this in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In response to the religious leaders' many accusations, Jesus said nothing. In fact, Pilate was amazed by this, right? In John 19, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Peter says of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, that Jesus committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He wasn't entrusting himself to Pilate. He was entrusting himself to his father. Even on the cross, Jesus ultimately trusted his father, did he not? Luke 23, 46, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why would Jesus do all this? I mean, if anyone could have defended himself, it was Jesus. Peter tells us that too, right? He tells us why Jesus would go to the cross. Continuing in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, what's amazing is Jesus came into the world for the very purpose of facing the injustice of the cross. Peter on Pentecost in Acts 2 said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's why Jesus came into the world, to face that injustice. The very reason Jesus came into the world was to be falsely accused for you. Because though Jesus was innocent, God the Father was laying on him the sins of the world. The innocent one dying in the place of the guilty. Jesus suffered the injustice of this world, the, the false accusations that led to his death, that we might get, not injustice, or for that matter, justice, but grace. Jesus took the judgment on our sin that, that we who believe in him might find forgiveness for those sins. Jesus bore their punishment so we won't have to. And Jesus' appeal in the midst of that, because there was an appeal, Jesus' appeal was to the judgment seat of the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Father. In the midst of this mess, Jesus knew the Father was just. He trusted the Father even in the midst of human injustice. And the Father did not disappoint because the Father did not abandon him. The Father vindicated Jesus. He, he justified Jesus, Paul says in Romans 4.25 and 1 Timothy 3.16. That is, Jesus was declared righteous 
in the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is his vindication, right? Human adversaries charge Jesus with guilt. Human authorities condemned him to death. But the just judge of all the earth declared Jesus righteous and rewarded him with resurrection life. Jesus underwent judgment for sin, sins he did not commit, our sin, and came through victorious. So we ask, okay, what does this have to do with Paul? What does this have to do with us? What does it have to do with you and me? As we think about Satan's accusations and uh, any accusations that the world might throw at us as a church or as you as an individual, there are two things that we must do. This is our appeal. On the one hand, we can defend the reputation of the church. This is what Paul has done repeatedly in the book of Acts. Uh, religious leaders bring false charges against him. Paul says, I didn't do those things. We find the same thing in the Psalms. David is falsely accused, and he regularly asks God to judge him according to his righteousness. Now, we're really uncomfortable with those Psalms. We read some of them earlier. But David did not mean that he was without sin. We know David was a sinner. Psalm 51, for example, comes to mind. Psalm 32, where David is confessing his sin. So, so David doesn't mean when he says, judge me according to my righteousness, that he is not sinful. He means in this case, these accusations against him are false. Right? He, he has remained faithful to God. He's not perfect, but neither has he committed apostasy. He is appealing to God's justice. The charges my enemies have brought against me are false, he's saying to God. See, it's not unequivocally wrong to defend yourself. And yet, like Jesus, we must entrust our reputation to our Father. Right? Know that in this life, you, you, may, you may get a bad rep. Right? You may be attacked and accused like David, like Paul, like Jesus. And of course, Jesus was ultimately condemned for that. But your Father will vindicate you on the last day. We need to entrust even our reputations to him. Not fight and claw to try to prove ourselves, but entrust our souls to the just judge of all the earth. It's similar with, with Satan's accusation, right, that you are worthless. That's just not true. Now, if you've ever felt like you're worthless, uh, let me tell you, that is a lie from the devil. Uh, we must not seek to find that worth in something intrinsic in us, that's a dead end, right? If we try to say, I'm, I'm worth it because, and we start pointing at something in ourselves, somebody can always tear us down. But we must not, therefore, conclude that because I'm not, I'm not righteous in myself, that therefore I'm worthless. Worth is, is about value, right? And value is not always intrinsic, is it? Uh, you know, gold, from one perspective, is just a worthless metal until it's valued, right? Until someone values it. We are valuable because God has valued us at the cost of his son. That's the price he paid for us. The answer to your worthless is, the father loves me. I'm valuable to him. Look at the cross. God sent his son for me. This moves us to another kind of accusation that, that the truth of the matter is, more often than not, we, we are guilty. Probably more guilty than our adversaries know. Right? Most of the time when people accuse us of things, they have no idea. 
If they only knew, they'd have a lot more fodder. And when Satan begins whispering in our ear, right, you vile sinner, how dare you name the name of Jesus? How do we respond then? Well, we find refuge in the cross. You know, ultimately, Paul himself knew that a defense before any human court was not ultimate. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. Again, these words were read earlier. Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Right? As he says elsewhere, Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So you and I will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And though it may not seem so in the moment, human courts are ultimately insignificant. The judgments of men are irrelevant. What will happen when you stand in God's court? What says your conscience? When Satan begins to accuse, how might you respond? To whom can you appeal for help and hope? You know, I'm not sure where I learned it, but, but I learned a long time ago, though I, though I daily forget. Though I daily forget. I learned a long time ago not to defend and not to despair. Right? You see, when Satan accuses, I simply say, you're right. I am guilty. I've, I've wasted half my life. I've chased after frivolous pursuits. I've lacked grace and compassion for those around me. I've been self-indulgent and self-satisfying. But that is the very reason that Jesus died. My Lord knew all those things when he took my sin upon the cross. He knew all those things when he invited me to believe. He knew all those things when he drew me to himself by his spirit. And he has taken the record of my guilt and nailed it to the cross. And so, so you, don't, you don't need to defend, right? Admit. But you also don't need to despair. Right? Appeal to the cross. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Friends, even if we don't face physical threats and civil accusations, uh, we have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to destroy our lives, to accuse us before the throne of grace, to convince us that there's no hope of justice in this life or the life to come. Our appeal can only be to the blood of Jesus and the justice of the Father. And our hope can only be in the vindication that will come at the resurrection. God will put all things right. He has begun that in the cross where he dealt with our sin. And he will complete that on the last day, which is our hope. So don't, don't defend, right? Admit your guilt. Be honest. You are deserving of judgment. You are not loved. You have not loved God or neighbor as you ought. You failed in thought, word, and deed, but do not despair. 
Jesus has bled and died for us. He has been accused in our place to remove our guilt. He was raised for us and for our vindication. Do not defend, but neither despair, rather rest in the work of Jesus in your place. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us to stand firm against the accusations of the evil one. Teach us to stand firm, uh, not because we are so great, but because we have a Savior who has taken those accusations upon himself, taken our sin upon himself, that we might be forgiven and cleansed and righteous in him. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.